You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Myth Behaving. I'm Mary Wilson and I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Ms. Carla Clifton. Hey Carla, how are you? I am doing wonderful. It is such a beautiful day here in Southeast Texas, and I'm excited about our special guest that we're going to have here on our very first show. Our special guest may be a writer, publisher, agent, editor, or anyone else connected with the literary world. And we're going to have special segments, too. Don't forget about those. They're going to be related to reading or writing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Be very quiet when hunting books in the library of a myth behavior. Okay, that means it's time for our first segment from our library of myth behavior. That would be me. I'm I'm the myth behavior. So what are you recommending today for our average little myth behavior? I'm recommending Tim Powers' book, The Bible Repairman and Other Stories. This is a collection, and it's really wonderful. What I also liked about this is at the end of each story, he's got a little personal note in there as to where he got the ideas for this story. And I can totally see why this was this year's winner for the Best Collection Award at the World Fantasy Awards 2012. So... Listeners, if you have not picked this up yet, we're going to have links to this book on our site, and you can go to MythBehaving.com and click on the link and go right to the site to buy Tim's book. Gosh, that's awesome. And, you know, what better timing? Our very first guest is Tim Powers himself. Having Tim as our very first guest is special because, you know, him and Mayor go way back, you know, way back. Way back. You know, she's known him since college. (laughs) And I'm not going to ask how long ago that was. (laughs) Yeah, please don't. (laughs) I'm sure Tim and I will both appreciate if you don't bring up exactly how many years we've known each other. Um, I, I met Tim when we went to Cal State Fullerton together. And it's special for me for two reasons. Not only because I've known him for so long and he is an award winning author and, uh, actually considered one of the masters of contemporary fantasy. And, you know, I write in that genre. But it's also special because when I first started writing, I I haven't thought of myself as a writer ever. I mean, Tim went to school for this. And back in the day, we used to know Ray Bradbury and Philip K. Dick and all these people. And it was awesome. But I was the actor and they were the writers. And I never considered myself a writer. So when I first started to write my book a couple of years ago, the natural thing for me to do was to shoot some chapters off to Tim and say, hey, Tim, tell me if this is garbage and I should, you know, toss it in the trash or if I should go ahead and finish this book. And he very graciously said, finish the book. So it's special not only because I've known him and he is an award-winning author, but because he's the first person to encourage me to write. And that makes me feel really good. So, Tim, welcome, and thanks so very much for your encouragement, and thanks for being our first guest. Well, thank you, Mayor, and thank you, Carla. I'm happy to be aboard on the um, maiden voyage here. Maiden voyage, I like that. That's going to be a nice tie-in for um, Of Stranger Tides later on, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's obvious, yeah. 
of Truth and Mythery. Okay, this is a commonly held publishing or writing belief and found whether it's going to be true or just another myth. This is called Of Truth and Mythery. And, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions, at least, that I found is that once you've got a book published, you're automatically rich and famous. Aren't you? No. (laughs) You know? And it's really funny because my book isn't even released yet. I'm not even published yet. And I've already got people going, oh, wow, you're going to be rich now, huh? And I'm like, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Well, it really doesn't work that way now, does it, Tim? No, uh, though you're right. People do assume that if they see a book of yours at uh, a Barnes and Noble far from where you live, so they know you didn't go put it there yourself, they do figure, oh, well, you're obviously going to be moving to, um, you know, Bel Air now, right? Um, and I think that's probably true of other professions too. Like if we know somebody who is an actor and had a role on, some TV show, we think, oh, you must automatically be rich, right? But I think it's the same in all of them, which is you get paid irregularly and uh, proportionately to some percentage worked out. And it, uh, no, you're, you're more often broke than not. You know, Tim, ever since I've known you, you're a writer. Back when we were in college, you were unpublished. And now, of course, you're you're published with many books out there. And one of the things I remember, especially about the old days, and I'm going to reminisce a little bit here for us, is the stories you would tell us. Do you remember when we would, um, I think it was your sister's car, your sister's convertible that we would go riding in? And you would tell the best stories. And I always loved for you to tell us stories whenever we were on our way. Sometimes we'd just drive into L.A. or wherever. How did you get from that unpublished writer to where you are now? When did you first get published? How did all of that come about? Well, I always um, figured I I would like to be a writer um, ever since I first read a book. Uh, And then in 1967, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction ran an editorial on how to submit stories for publication. So I immediately wrote a sort of copying retelling of one of the stories in that same issue and sent it in i was 15 at the time and got a rejection slip and thought this is great hemingway got these (laughs) uh i was always very pleased to get rejection slips because i always figured there's a finite number of them you'll get before you score and (laughs) and therefore that number goes down by one every time you get a rejection slip and uh, and then when I was 23, uh, K.W. Jeter sold a book to a very uh, low-budget paperback line in the 70s called uh, Laser Books. And he said, these guys are hungry. They pay very little. They have no backlist. They're who you want to hit. And And so I did, and luckily... Luckily, they did buy the book I sent them. And after that, I quit my pizza parlor job and I quit grad school because I figured I'm a writer now. I I don't need that stuff. And shortly after that, the cheap company went out of business and I went back to my (laughs) 
<laughs> my pizza parlor job. But I never did go back to school because I figured, well, even if even if I'm broke and that publisher's gone, I've still had a book published. I can't I can't go be a college professor now. And fortunately, I, in fact, have never had an actual full-time job. It's always been part-time little goofy jobs to sort of support the writing. I remember, I remember the, the job at the tobacco shop. I used to like to go into the mall because it always smelled so good in there. That was a great job. Yeah, I, uh, that may have been my best part-time job because uh, they expected you to uh, be familiar with all the cigars and smoke all the tobacco. And so it was, uh, it was more sociable than work, really. Of course, this is back in the, what, 70s, so it yeah. wasn't as socially unacceptable to smoke a pipe back then. No kidding. These days, I, I suppose you're not allowed to smoke in smoke shops. I don't think you are, although a lot of them are all shut off and they have these cigar bars now that uh, that it is very socially accepted in those particular types of environments. So That's true. If you call it a cigar club, you're okay. Right, right. Well, that uh, leads us into what interests me most, because I'm not a writer, is how do writers decide what to write. Tim, what inspires you to write? Well, usually it comes from some nonfiction I've been reading just for fun. I'll be reading a book about people climbing Mount Everest or spies in World War II just for entertainment, and I'll stumble on a couple of things and think, you know what, that, that looks like a hook you could hang a story on. And if I run into two or three of those, I'll think, okay, keep reading, but it's not entertainment now, it's research now. Start start underlining. And so I, I kind of stumble across it by accident. And, uh, and once I've sort of declared to myself that now this appears to be the area you're going to write a book about, um, read more about this, follow up side angles, uh, do it as work now, not as fun. And so it's kind of random. Um, the uh, I, I wrote a book about spies in the Middle East, and it was just based on reading a nonfiction about a British spy. And um, so they, I kind of stumble on the topics, really. That is just amazing to me because I am probably one of the least creative people you would ever meet. So that it just totally amazes me. I mean, I would walk around with writer's block. So do you ever get writer's block? And if so, what do you do to get rid of it? Oh, yeah. I think I have writer's block every morning. Um, <laughs> I think, as I understand it, um, writer's block is not simply you are unable to write a sentence in English. When I talk to people who claim to have writer's block, I ask that and they say, well, of course I can write a sentence. You know, George walked to the mailbox. Uh, there, look, you've written a sentence. They say, yes, but I have writer's block in the sense that I can't write anything that isn't stupid and pedestrian and lifeless. And I always tell them, well, that's good. First draft is supposed to be those things. Um, if you're writing pointless, idiotic, uh, directionless first drafts, that's how first drafts are supposed to be. You're supposed to write 60 pages of that stuff and then pretend somebody else wrote it and gave it to you to fix up. 
and you find what nuggets of quality there might be in it and you toss the rest of it away. So really, writer's block, I think, is just um, discouragement at the crappiness of first draft. But but first draft is supposed to be crappy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I love that. I love that definition of that, Tim, because... I don't get that writer's block thing either, so I can I can write all sorts of crappy sentences. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I reread my first drafts, and it reads like a bunch of people in street clothes on a bare stage, holding scripts, looking at tape marks on the floor. And if I let anyone read those first drafts, they would um, tell me to get a job. But, <laughs> yeah, but I, I I would tell them, no, wait, I'll I'll rewrite it i'll go over it again pretty soon there'll be nice uh you know uh, stage uh, sets and costumes and there'll be real glasses with real drink in them uh give me give me some time of course it's stupid right now i love that analogy and of course you know i can totally relate to that i figured with my... <laughs> with you, yeah with my stage background so perfect analogy there tim Writing is a process. I didn't realize how much of it was how you didn't warn me about this part two years ago ah. uh, about the whole process of writing and the the writing and the rewriting and the sending to betas and then the the query letters and the whole process. You, of course, are are not into that query stage. You're just in the writing and getting published. But what do you love most about it? The whole process. What's your favorite part? Well, my favorite part is when you um, you get actual finished published books, and and you know you can go to Barnes and Noble and and see them on the shelf, because then you can do the thing which is the main purpose of writing fiction, which is not to make money, though you might, and it's not to uh, paint a portrait of your time or any of that. The main purpose for writing fiction is to show off. And so when people come to your house, you can say, sit down, let me clear this stuff off the couch. It's copies of my new novel. <laughs> um, so that, that would definitely be my favorite part. But um, also uh, other benefits are, as a writer, you don't have to wake up at any particular time of day. Uh, you don't have to shave or put your shoes on. Um you can take a day off anytime you want. Uh, it's it's um, it's much more comfortable and convenient than having a real job. But you do get real money for it. You do, you do, yeah. Um, Occasionally, <laughs> it's very unpredictable. Yeah, yeah. You get a check and you think, "Hot dog! Look at this. Uh, we've we've got money here." And then you say. How long is this supposed to last, this chunk of money? And you, the answer is, I have no idea. Maybe I'll get another chunk in a week. Maybe I won't get another chunk for six months. Um, so you, you kind of have to um, get used to the unpredictable roulette wheel pace of it. Well, Tim, is there anything about the whole process that you don't like? Um, in the whole writing thing, um, and if so, what is it? Oh, um, 
it would be more comfortable, I suppose, if the publishers could give you a regular monthly allowance so that you could, uh, for example, uh, estimate what you might have made by the end of the year. Uh, or, you know, should I, should I buy this expensive thing or, or not? Um, but of course, for them to be able to give you an allowance would mean they were able to see the future. And so that's not really a realistic aim um and of course there's no health insurance or pension arrangements unless you are able to make those yourself and uh and you might be in great shape you know in one year but uh two years later you're quitting the health insurance and gutting the retirement account um so i suppose i suppose the unpredictability of the whole thing is uh is kind of uh, a good thing to worry about if you're inclined to worry. One of the things that amazes me, and when we talked the other day, I I didn't even think of tying you into this, which was probably kind of silly. So, Tim, talk to us about steampunk. Huh. Well, um, actually, it all started back in about 75 when uh, editor that K.W. Jeter and I had been dealing with said, there's a company, there's a publisher in England that wants to do a series of books about King Arthur reincarnated throughout history. Uh, so there'd be Arthur uh, chopping open Nazi tanks with Excalibur and uh, <laughs> trying to prevent Lincoln's assassination and things like that. And uh, Jeter and I and a third writer, Ray Nelson, agreed to write these books. And we got far enough to where we had each written at least several. We had to divvy up history first. You know, I get the seventeen fifty, you can have eighteen fifty, I want uh God knows what Elizabethan England. And after we'd written several books each, the publisher in England said they thought it was a stupid idea and they didn't didn't want the books. And so the three of us looked at each other and realized that very soon Publishers are going to be sick of getting book manuscripts about King Arthur reincarnated throughout history. And each of us thought, I'll get mine out before you can get yours out. And K.W. Jeter had picked Victorian England for his historical setting for King Arthur. And it was proto-steampunk. It uh, involved weird alien submarines under London and, and things like that. And after the British deal fell apart, he was trying to sell it. And he told Jim Blaylock and I, look at this great research book I've got. It's this thing called uh, London Labor and London Poor by Henry Mayhew. And it's a vast, in fact, originally it was like 12 volumes. And it's a total description of London underworld uh poor people and how they made a living and how thieves worked and prostitutes and ver what was the characters of various districts of london and so blaylock and i read those and thought well jeepers we'll we'll write some of this too and so i wrote the anubis gates and blaylock wrote uh, a novel called homunculus and jeter had written his book called morlock knight and so 
fairly, at roughly the same time, each of the three of us wrote these um, books about 19th century London with science fictional or fantasy elements going on. And Jeter then in 87 wrote a letter to Locus Magazine, the magazine of record for the science fiction field. Right. Uh, and he said, we should have a term to describe this stuff that Powers and Blaylock and I are writing. Uh, something like cyberpunk, which was very hot at the time. Maybe steampunk. And it kind of went nowhere at that point. It just dropped with no echoes. But then a few years later, people picked up on the term and began to write books deliberately set in Victorian London or similar places and use the word steampunk. And now, of course, it's grown into um, a whole category, not only of fiction, but maybe even more strongly of dress and costume. And people now uh, studying the whole new genre look back at what Jeter was talking about and they'll say things like Powers' Anubis Gates is not really steampunk. It's not Victorian London. It's, it's uh, what, Edwardian. And it doesn't have any steam in it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not science fiction. It's, it's fantasy. Um, and they're right, but I'm pleased anyway that uh, Anubis Gates does keep on getting stuck in as a sort of core steampunk uh, book. Yeah. It's a fun genre. I, I haven't written anything in it myself, but I, I sure love reading it. And it's great costumes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at, at conventions now, you see all sorts of fascinating costumes with uh, mechanical hats and, and strange uh, Victorian-type ray guns and strange goggles and lenses. And, yeah, it's great stuff. I find that story absolutely fascinating because my daughter is very much into steampunk and decorates a lot of her house that way. And <laughs> I mean, she's very, very much into all of that. And I find it fascinating too, because I, I think it's kind of cool to mix different types of things to come up with a whole new thing. And so to know where it came from is, that's totally awesome. It is fascinating stuff. I love uh, the closer you look, the more interesting it is. All kind of little gadgets and gauges and gears and whatnot. Uh, it's it's a it's an interesting fashion. It is well to peep to put two totally different random things together that you would think would not normally go together, and yeah. they fit. I love that. I like the design of steampunk because it's so, you know, all the scroll work and it's very fancy schmancy and, yes. and I, I like that about it. It's, it's very cool. You know, I, uh, I look at some of the costumes, the steampunk, steampunk costumes and think, I want that. But of course, where am I going to wear them? But, uh, and especially at my age, a little, a little ridiculous, but, um, at conventions, you'd be a hit. There you go. <laughs> and, and at my ne next conventions that I, I go to, I think I'm going to have to come up with a costume. <laughs> That'll be fun. Well, Tim, I'm going to ask you, are you a planner or are you a pantser? And so that our listeners will know what we mean by that, 
Do you use detailed outlines and notes, or do you just kind of fly by the seat of your pants? I totally work by extensive notes and outlining. Um, first, I comb all my research books for cool bits. And, you know, I'll read something. I'll think, oh, you've got to use that place for a scene, or you've got to use this character. You've got to have this strange custom figure in the plot. And when I've got a whole bunch of cool bits, I kind of think, how do you connect the dots? Uh, what sort of character would most effectively be propelled through this picture? Uh, what would that character's background have to be to make him most suitable for this story? What other characters would be suitable? Um, and so then I have to figure out what's going to happen and in what order. And mainly maybe to postpone actually getting to work, I write... <laughs> Well, I'm always looking for a way to postpone that. I write out a terribly long and detailed outline for myself. I try to crowd in even bits of dialogue that will show up in the book and descriptions. And finally, I'll make a giant calendar where each day square is about a foot square. And I'll write into each square the events that are to happen on that day. And it's another cure for writer's block because every morning when I get to work here, sit at my little desk, my first thought is, I don't want to write anything today. I want to reread old Heinlein paperbacks. And I'll think, no, no, come on, get to work. And I think, I can't think of what to write. And you think, look at your stupid calendar. Look at the, the you can see there what's the next thing that's going to happen. And oh yeah, right, okay the end of that scene and the beginning of this scene, and you've even provided sample dialogue. Okay, I guess I can do it. But um, I, I therefore don't at all do what you hear some writers say, which is uh, my characters have lives of their own. They take over the story. I let them do what they want. Um, when I'm writing, I don't want any spontaneity from my characters. It, <laughs> It's as if I've written a play and they're actors on a stage doing a dress rehearsal. I don't want them improvising dialogue or, or actions. Um, so I'm, I'm, I hope my characters do seem to be behaving spontaneously and, uh, emotionally, but in actuality, they are, they're, they're actors reading lines that somebody else wrote for them. They're doing exactly what you want them to do. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I'm the boss. They are puppets, and That's the puppets cool. better not start thinking they can come to life. I think I need to send mine over to your house so you can teach them how to do that <laughs> because mine have a bad habit of uh, of um, taking a life on of their own. Well, of course, that, in spite of all my best planning, that does happen. I, <laughs> Oh, the will, truth comes out. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll be writing a scene and uh, out of nowhere comes uh, a great line for one of them to say or a great uh, action for one of them to take, which I had not planned. And at that point, I have to think, do you stomp on this or do you somehow weave it into the established outline? I won't trash the established outline to humor a character. Um, but I'll try to 
weave a surprising new element in so it can be compatible with the established outline. That's awesome. Changing direction a little bit, I want to talk about the industry a little bit, Tim, because you've seen it change over the decades. I mean, it is so different now from, from what it was back in the 70s and the 80s, even even five years ago. Uh, do you think any of these changes have impacted on your own work? Not a lot. Um, uh, the most uh, impact anything's had on my work has really been just mechanical. I mean, in the old days, it was you do your first drafts with a big pen, and when it's done, you haul out the typewriter and start whacking the keys and using that uh, little white sheets of paper you would put in when you hit the wrong letter so you could white it out. Excuse me. And uh, then it became computers uh, and daisy wheel printers and that tractor feed paper. Um, and you'd uh, tear all the sheets loose and mail the bundle to the publisher. And then, and nowadays, of course, it's um, you're sending the manuscript as an email attachment. Um, but it's not that different. Uh, I don't think the requirements of the editors have changed. I think, uh, you know, the substance of a novel has, is, is still the same regardless of the changing technology. Uh, you always hear that, I've always heard since the 70s, that uh, the science fiction fantasy market is going to hell. It used to be good, but now it's impossible to get published, and now they only want bestsellers, and they don't want, specifically whoever they're talking to, they don't want you. But they've always said that, and it's never, I think, really proven to be true. So, um, yeah, as far as I can see, the only real changes in the industry have been technical, mechanical. Right. Now, what about from the reader's point of view and e-readers versus print books? Are you selling a lot, a lot of your books? Are they, are you doing more print or are you doing more ebook versions or do you know? Uh, just from what I've heard from the publisher, I believe it's still more paper copies print, uh, in print that sell than ebook versions. But everybody expects that to tilt the other way very soon. Um, I know I have, uh, Kindle and uh, iPad and for example when we're traveling it's great to be able to uh, look at the 30 or 40 books you've got on Kindle and think well what am I going to read tonight um, so I'm a big fan of ebooks um, it, it in a way again it's not that different it's still pages of text uh, it's just a, a different way of turning the page Good, good. I like that answer. Yeah, I'm a one that uh, I'm a techno. You know, I love technology. I'm kind of freaky about it, but there's just something about curling up to a good book, just the way it feels in your hand and the way it smells, and even even if it's an old musty book, it just has so much history. So that's going to be the hardest thing for me to give up. And go to because I have an iPad and uh, read a lot of stuff on that. But uh, yeah, that's it's. Well, I I, re I really only use the iPad uh, Kindle um, when we're traveling. At home, I 
like you prefer a paper book. And it's much easier in a paper book to say, oh, uh, let me, let me, uh, how far are we from the end? Oh, look, we're crowding up to the end. Uh, this is the last few scenes here. We've only got a few pages left. Of course, you could hit the screen, which would tell you what percentage of the book you've used up. So I suppose that would have the same effect. But yeah, I prefer paper books on the whole. My agent says that uh, when I've said something like, I hope paper books don't become as obsolete as scrolls, <laughs> uh, he said, no, no, no. It, it looks like people who really love a book they read on their Kindle, often they'll buy a paper copy of it as a souvenir. And I think, as a souvenir? Sort of the way you'd keep the program book from the uh, a movie you really liked. And I think, okay, well, that's better than nothing. Well, and I can relate to that. I mean, because it, there's many times that I've gone to, like, the theater or to a movie house and watched a movie and still bought the DVD so I could have it at home. I yeah, mean, so yeah. It makes sense. And, of course, um, I'm always a little nervous about books, whether it's books I wrote or books I want to read, which I need extensive hardware and electricity to be able to read. Um, like when I'm writing a book, I'll not only back up onto like a flash drive, but I'll also print out a hard copy and keep it in a car in the yard in case the house burns up. Uh, and I never figure a book really exists to where you can relax about it unless it's on paper because you don't need electricity to read a physical book. I like and the if, way you think. Yeah, if there should ever be an electromagnetic pulse that wipes out all, you know, circuitry, I'll still be all right. I've, That's I've got, right. You'll be ready for that zombie apocalypse, right? Yeah, I, I'm surrounded by books right here, floor to ceiling. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, since so many of your works are fantasies set in historical backgrounds, please let our audience know about the historical research that you do and how it kind of blends with the fantastic into history. Well, I'll start reading... Uh, a, a book about some period of history or a biography of somebody, some historical character. And I'm, I'm looking for unexplained, mysterious bits, little anomalies. And any biography will have those things. There's always a point where the character does something that makes no evident sense. Or there's a period in the character's life that is completely unaccounted for. They'll say, you know, during the summer of 1812, we don't know where he was or what he was doing. And I'll think, aha, good, okay, I'll figure out what he was doing. And if he did something apparently senseless and counterproductive, I'll think, what sort of supernatural context might apply within which that was not irrational behavior? in which that was, in fact, very shrewd behavior. And in a way, I'm pretending to myself that there really was a supernatural subtext in that situation, and I'm a detective trying to deduce what it was. And so I'll come across a bit where, for example, Albert Einstein went to a seance with Charlie Chaplin, 
and I'll think, aha, who did, who, what dead person did he need to get in touch with? I think, well, what crucial dead people are there in his, uh, in his life? I bet it was that one. And then I'll find some other clue that has to do with that dead character. And pretty soon I'll not so much invent as, in quotes, discover a supernatural backstory for some historical situation, some historical place. And um, I find late at night I get convinced by it. I'll think, my God, Powers, you're not inventing this. You're, you're discovering what was really going on secretly. <laughs> and then I, then I go to bed and I'm okay in the morning. <laughs> but yeah, basically I look for, um, blanks or anomalies in history and then try to look at the other stuff and see what kind of supernatural, uh, subtext might be implied. Uh, for example, for a book set in the Caribbean in 1718 with pirates, they all behaved very weirdly, luckily. Um, voodoo was the obvious supernatural, uh, you know, background story to bring up and, and emphasize. Love it. In a way, my system for writing is perfect for someone with no intrinsic imagination. Um, because I don't so much make up stuff as find stuff. Yeah. It sounds to me like you are like a private investigator. You yeah. kind of look at what you see as facts. It's the things that you don't see that yeah. you're digging for. And that's amazing. I love that. It is kind of a detective thing. You, you say, why did he do that? And the historian would say, well, it was because he wanted to, you know, find his wife. And I think, no, why did he do it really? And then I find my supernatural explanations. Which I love. I love that blending of, of fantasy and history. It's because I love yeah, history anyway. I find uh, it, it seems to me that it's crucial to moor fantasy as tightly as possible with the real world because uh the big handicap of fantasy fiction is that everybody knows it's impossible i mean with science fiction you might think well you know one day they'll have starships one day they'll find aliens on other planets it's not impossible but with fantasy all the core statements are in fact bogus you know there aren't vampires ghosts werewolves genies and so I like to think that if I staple it all very firmly to real-world situations, the reader won't necessarily stumble as readily across the fact that, in fact, it's bogus at core. Because I, I want the reader to be taking the events as seriously as they'd take events in a, a detective story or a spy story or a western and so I, I really try hard to put real places and recognizably real people and things in there to sort of say, look, look, see, this is realistic. This isn't uh, Land of Oz. You trust me on this. I, I like that. That brings up a really Im important point, and that's um, wanting the reader to be able to willing, willingly suspend disbelief. Exactly. And I, yeah. 
Yeah, I want that speed bump to be as low as possible. Yeah, I like that. That's probably why I've always loved your writing and your stories, because, I mean, your stories back in the day when, when you were just sitting there telling us stories while we'd drive around, those were very imaginative, and some of those were pretty scary, too. I have no recollection of that. <laughs> <laughs> that amazes me, because I can almost remember some of them. I'll have to um, shoot them to you if I could remember them. I remember driving them. all over Fullerton and Los Angeles. Uh, it was my dad's car, actually. Oh, was it your Camaro. dad's, the convertible? Yeah, the convertible Camaro, yeah. Yeah, I, and, and, but you did, you told, there was, I can't, I can't quite remember one of them that just, was just so creepy, and we'd gone up to the airport, or coming from the airport, or something, I think we were on the 405, and, uh, you were telling us just a really creepy story about some man, and I don't remember all of the details to it, but uh, I remember the feeling that it gave me all these probably years later. It was probably ripped off from Lovecraft. <laughs> it might have been. It was wonderful, and I, I, I don't, like I said, I don't remember the story itself, but I remember the feeling you gave me, and I get that same feeling when I read your books, too, and I love that. I love that That's about good. your writing. Okay, getting into something completely different. These are the really hard questions now, Tim. <laughs> I'm joking. All right. Uh, embrace, if you could have myself. a, embrace yourself. If you could have a dinner party with any seven people, I mean, they can be alive, they can be dead, they can be fictional, they can be real. Who would you include? Seven people? Um, seven. I'm counting. Uh, Lovecraft. Um, I think Ernest Hemingway. Uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Um, what have we got? Three? Three. Um, Edward John Trelawney, who was a friend of Byron's and a very colorful, uh, piratical character. Um, uh, Mary Pickford, silent movie star. Of course, you right. knew that. I knew that. Uh, uh, Along with Mary Pickford, maybe D.W. Griffith. Ooh, interesting choice. Okay, that's six. One more. Um, and even though he might be grumpy, I think Raymond Chandler. I love those choices. That's that's a pretty diverse group. I I, I can I have an invitation into that party? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can you can come along. They, <laughs> okay. A lot of a lot of them are grouchy people. I, I it might get kind of uh, noisy. That's okay. I, I know other grouchy writers. <laughs> that sounds like the best kind of party, honestly. It does. It does. It does. Very, very, uh, uh, what is it, argumentative. I can see it already. Yeah, Hemingway. Did I say Lord Byron? You didn't say Lord Byron, but you said a friend of Lord Byron's. Well, I'd also have Byron. Uh, maybe him instead of Griffith. Uh, Mary Pickford can fill in the stories about silent movies. But, yeah, Byron and Hemingway would get in a fight, I think. Sounds fun. Well, let's do a little whimsical test. Who is your favorite, Batman or Superman, and why? Well, let's see. Batman or Superman. Um, well, I haven't read either of them since I was a kid, but I always liked Batman better. I think because he didn't have superpowers. Superman could kind of cheat. Uh, he could fly. He had x-ray vision. Uh, it, it was easy for him, but poor Batman had to invent gadgets to have up his sleeves, and uh, he had to drive around in a car, and uh, 
And so for him to be a superhero, he had to work a lot harder at it than, than Superman did. So also there was always kind of a more gritty, realistic tone to Batman, at least back in the 60s when I was reading it. And Gil Kane, I think, was was writing it. Um, so it was a little tiny few steps more credible, I think, than Superman was. God knows what they're doing today. I can um I can I could almost have answered that for you because you know it reminds Batman reminds me more of a steampunky kind of guy. You know? Having you know you're those... right actually. Yeah, Batman is totally steampunk. Yeah, yeah. He's he's got all his little gadgets and lights and um but yeah, he he had to kind of invent all his own little uh devices to let him compete uh with Superman. There you go. Also, I always loved Spider-Man when I was a kid because he, even more than Batman, had to live in the real world. And I remember sometimes on a rainy day, his webbing wouldn't stick and he'd fall a couple stories to the sidewalk and have a broken arm and have to take a bus back home, which was neat sort of touches like that. Exactly. Okay, Tim, one of the things that I notice in interviews is you always wonder at least ones I've given them as they don't always ask me a question. I wish they'd asked me. So what question do you never get asked that you wish someone would ask you? And what would your answer to that question be? Well, let's see. I'm sort of trying to replay questions I have had. Um, I suppose it would be sort of fun if somebody were to ask me, it would probably have to be kind of a, literature major type interviewer, but um, if somebody were to ask me, Powers, what themes do you feel you explore in your books? What statement do you feel you have in your fiction? And my answer would be none, never. Uh, I, I don't ever have anything to say in my books. Um, it always makes me itch when writers say, in this book, I'm making a statement about, I don't know, sexism. And you, you say, oh, really? What, what statement is it you make in the book? My statement is, sexism is bad. Cool. You had a whole, write a whole book for that? Wouldn't a bumper sticker have done just as well? Um, and I always hate it as a reader when I'm, lost in a book and imagining that the characters are real with real problems and suddenly it becomes clear that the author has some agenda the author is trying to make some point by manipulating the characters in the action at that point my suspension of disbelief collapses and i never want to do that myself to readers so yeah i wish someday somebody would ask me what i'm like trying to say in my books and I'll answer something like vampires should be killed <laughs> bad guys no should matter not what pop. the question is right <laughs> yeah yeah actually I've always thought that a good all-purpose answer would be something I read in a Dave Barry book once which is nobody wins when you play games with traffic safety <laughs> I love that. Well, okay well holding true to myth behaving and we find that everyone has their own personal myths. That's things that people may think about us that may or may not be true. 
What do people believe about you, Tim, that is absolutely not true? Well, actually, um, often people describe what I write as uh, alternate reality. They'll say, oh, Powers writes alternate reality novels. And it always irks me because I try real hard to write this reality. Um, I always figure if I write alternate reality, it means I've screwed up. Um, but uh, alternate reality, I think, is like Philip K. Dick's uh, The Man in the High Castle or Ward Moore's Bring the Jubilee or Keith Roberts's uh, Pavan, each of which is set in a alternate history in which some crucial thing that happened here did not happen. Like uh, Keith uh, Roberts's book is about if Queen Elizabeth had been assassinated, and Philip K. Dick's book is about if the Germans and Japanese had won World War II. Uh, in other words, reality diverged at some point, and the story is set in that divergent reality. But I always try real hard to set my books firmly in this reality. Um, and I try real hard not ever to violate our established history in this timeline. So um, I never contradict people who say Powers writes alternate history, but especially if they're saying something nice. But... <laughs> uh, but in my head, I'm always thinking, no, it's not alternate. It's it's whatever the opposite of alternate is. Uh, this here. I love that answer, but I have I have one that's tough because now you got to come clean. What I did... probably won't. <laughs> For me, um, what do people believe about you that really is true? What misbehavior do you have that is really true? Well, I'll probably just think of something very nice. Uh... What what do they think about me that is true? Um, well, people say Powers does a lot of research for his books. That's true. Um, maybe they say Powers covers a lot of laziness by claiming that he's <laughs> spending all his time doing research when actually he's just rereading old Heinlein novels. If they're saying that, I'd hate to admit it, but that would be true. Um, Basically, I would just try to find something people say about me which is nice and say, well, they're totally correct in that. Um, you'll you'll yeah. take it as long as it's good, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think of anything nasty people have said about me that I could covertly admit was true. Maybe Maybe they just don't pass it on. Maybe they're all talking about it, but they're all too polite to tell me. <laughs> all right. Well, that brings us to our next um, very special segment called Myth Print. It's time for Myth Print Tips and Tricks of the Industry. Myth Print includes a basic tip concerning the writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. That's to me, is it? It can be, absolutely. Do you have a tip that you'd like to pass on, Tim? Uh, I probably have a couple. I would, I would say, um, you need to read a whole lot and reading should be your main vice in order to be a writer. 
and you need to have read extensively in both the field you want to write in and outside the field or genre you want to write in. Um, I'm always appalled at people who have done neither one. People say, I want to write science fiction, but they've never read Philip K. Dick or Theodore Sturgeon or Heinlein. Um, or, or on the other, oh, right. Or on the other side, they've never read, uh, I don't know, uh, Mark Twain, uh, Hemingway. Um, and I would also say, I'm quoting El Elmore Leonard. He said, uh, when you're writing a book, leave out the parts that readers skip over, which I've always thought was the most one piece useful bit of writing advice I ever heard. I love but, that. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's very good. In fact, Hemingway said something similar. He said that any story can be improved by throwing away the first three pages and having the story start with the next complete sentence. And I think that's generally true. I and like finally, that. That's good advice. Finally, I would say, just a quirk of my own, don't give us the name of your character in the first sentence of the story. Don't say, George Jones started his car and drove away from the Mini Mart. Just say, the car started and drove away. Give us his name in the second sentence, or third, or fifth. Because um, it always seems to me that if you start with the name of the character, it seems too much like, once upon a time, it sort of seems to be announcing that this is fiction that you're reading. All right. Well, that leads us to Mythnomer. The Mythnomer is... Mythnomer is where Mayor or I pick our word for the day. My pick for the word for the day is myth-behaving. That's a lovely made-up name given to us by our writer friend, Jan O'Hara. You can find Jan on her site at Tartitude. And I like to think of that as one of those words that can mean whatever anyone wants it to. In fact, Carla, we're going to have a contest, and I know you know about this. I know. It's going to be awesome. I'm very excited about it. It's I am too. It's kind of a, a launch the myth-behaving podcast contest. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? It is. <laughs> and we're going to extend it over the first few episodes. Okay. Well, we'd like our listeners to tell us what they think myth-behaving means. We'll pick the best answer that we think fits our show. And I'm already putting together a prize package. I've got some authors that have donated some books. Tim Powers is going to sign the three books that we have on the website, the, the links there. He's going to sign those three books, and we're going to send the actual, not ebooks, the actual physical print books, and we're going to send those off to the winner. And we're also going to have uh, books donated so far by Christine Ashworth, Kay Latham, Cindy Young-Turner are all participating so far. Uh, the best thing to do is check onto the website to find out all of the details. 
but I think we're going to have a nice little prize package put together for the win winner, and the details are going to be evolving over the next few days, so be sure to check back at the web website and find out exactly what we're going to be doing. Yeah, we're going to put all this together because we're, this is something we're very excited about because myth behaving is our baby, and it, it is something that we're very excited to be launching, and we want you, the listener, to be part of it. So be sure to check out episode two because that's where all the details are going to be along with some more information on our website. Tim, thank you again for being our guest on our very first inaugural episode. Uh, oh, it's always a pleasure chatting with you and today wasn't any different. And thank you for all of the golden little nuggets and tidbits and everything that you have given us today. Well, thank you for having me on your premiere episode. It's been fun. And before we si f sign off completely, how can our listeners find you? Ah, let's see. There's a, um, a, a Yahoo site chat about powers, and I always um, monitor that and answer questions there. And then there's a, a website a guy maintains, which is theworksoftimpowers.com, all one word, of course. And uh, he relays to me messages that arrive there. You also have Facebook. Do you have Twitter? No, no, don't have Twitter. It would be uh, it'd be very uh, disillusioning for people if I had Twitter. It would just be <laughs> it would just be things like the cat vomited on the keyboard again. <laughs> no, uh, but you have Facebook, cat. right? Uh, well, you know, I do have Facebook, sort of. Um, the publisher set up a page of when my last book came out and told me to monitor it and participate. And um, so I am able to answer questions and stuff on that, though I'm not allowed to have friends. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's because it's his author page. I know, I know. <laughs> and you can't have friends on that. You can't. You but just I, have to like it. <laughs> but I can I can converse, you know, people ask questions and I write answers, so uh it uh it at least is uh semi Facebook. Oh yeah. Well we'll be sure and provide links to everybody to uh for your Facebook and your Yahoo page and how they can get in touch with you. Because I tell you it has been a, an immense pleasure learning a little bit about you and what you do and how these things come to you. I find the whole process amazing. And I want to thank you for taking time to, to share with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Uh, thank you. Um, remember, you can go to mythbehaving.com for more information on Tim Powers. We're going to have links to all of his books there, or at least the top three okay. books there. And we'll have his contact information and all that ready for you. You can also download this episode on iTunes, or you can go right to the MythBehaving.com web website and click on our little player and listen to it right there. Okay, and we're really working hard, since this is our inaugural episode, that we want to move right on up iTunes. And the only way we can do that is for you to go to iTunes, leave us a positive feedback on this podcast, and you can also take a moment to subscribe to us. You can also follow on our website through an RSS feed. We'd love to have audience participation. So if you have a topic or a guest you'd like us to consider, then just leave a message on the Myth Behaving website. Thanks for tuning in to Myth Behaving. We'll see you next time. I'm Carla. And I'm Mare. And we are Myth Behaving. See you next time. <laughs>